Well, happy Mother's Day. If you're a mother, we are glad that you're here this morning, and today we just wanted to celebrate you. And if you haven't already, I want to encourage you once service ends to go out into the gathering area, fill up on all those homemade spa items, snap some pictures with your family. We are just glad that you're here. And really, we just want to be obedient to the Word, which tells us to honor our parents. So we wanted to honor moms today and celebrate them. And if you don't mind this morning indulging me for a moment, I wanted to talk about my mom a little bit. She's here this morning. Um, here's a picture of me and my mom. Uh, you may know her. Her name is Jennifer, and although I give her a hard time, as most sons do, their moms, uh, she is an extremely beautiful, hardworking, diligent, strong-willed, and uh, extremely caring and supportive mother, and she has done an incredible job caring for me and my siblings. She's extremely supportive of things that I was doing in high school, through college. I mean, she makes her way up here almost every time that I'm up to preach, so I really appreciate her, and this week I was just uh, thinking about her. We're in this relationship talking about, or in this series talking about relationships, and um, you may or may not know this about my mom, but she's a single mom, which makes her a little bit more of a superwoman. And you may or may not know the story, uh, but uh, when I was two years old, that's when my dad kind of left the picture. Uh, And this week I asked my mom to kind of recount the story and just to give me some detail and fill me in. By the way, she said she never expected it coming. She couldn't see it. I mean, yeah, they had their fair share of arguments and disagreements, but what marriage doesn't, right? But um, at the time, it was just me and my brother, uh, my mom and my dad, and we were living in Texarkana, Texas, where my paternal grandparents live, and it was a normal day. January 6th, 1997, when I was two years old. I know, I'm young. They make fun of me in the office all the time for never getting their jokes, their old people jokes. But anyways, normal day, January 6th of 1997. My dad had left to go to work uh, with my Uncle Chris, and my mom had taken me and my brother to my grandparents' house for the day, and it was about mid-morning, and my uncle walks in and tells my mom, David, my dad, he's leaving. My mom's just shocked, surprised, like, what are you talking about? What do you mean he's leaving? What had happened was my dad had asked my uncle to take him to the airport. He had packed a bag, taken money, bought airplane tickets with my grandfather's uh, business credit card, and he was off. No one knew where he was going, what, what he was doing, how long he was going to go. My mom spent all day trying to get a hold of him, and finally... A day later, she did, and basically he said, Jennifer, you need to pack the kids up and go back to home because I'm not coming back, and that's exactly what she did. She packed up me and my brother and went back to live with uh, her parents in Fleming County, and in the midst of all of this, too, she found out she was pregnant with my younger sister. So within a short day, our lives were just forever changed, and my mom had an incredible support team. She had great parents. She had an incredible friend. But if you are or if you know a single mom, you know that it is not an easy task. And if I can say, my mom's done an incredible job. She did what she needed to do to support us. She raised the three of us on her own while holding down a job and also decided to go back to school in the midst of having a job and raising three kids so that she could have a better paying job. Much of my drive and determination comes from her. She is an incredible mother. I'm looking at her. I've got to stop looking at her. And although there are times we can butt heads and disagree, uh, I'll forever be grateful for her. And in this past week, I, I was just reflecting on relationships. Like I said, we've been talking about them. But I also knew that I was up to talk about friendship. And so I was thinking about this story and about people who came into my life 
specifically certain men who came into my life and almost like seemed to feel that role in the absence of my father. Some of those men included my grandparents. But there's another man, his name is Scott Phillips, Scott Phillips, and if you know me very well, you've probably heard me talk about Scott before. He's the man that married me and my wife, Cassie. He's the one that preached my ordination sermon when was here the night that I was ordained to be a minister. He was a youth minister of mine growing up, um, and today I still consider him an incredibly close friend, someone who I would call when I'm needing to make a decision because his advice, I trust it, I respect it. He is a man of God. But also I was thinking about uh, Jared Perkins, and I didn't ask his permission to talk about him this morning, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, five years ago, uh, he, after him and I did a week of camp together down at Camp Northward in Falmouth, he asked me to come and do an internship here at Plum Creek, and I've been here ever since. It's been an incredible journey. I've made great friends along the way, Troy and Lori Mower. Um, I call them my mom and dad because before uh, I was married, I was over at their house more than I was my own, and, uh, but made incredible friendships. But this week, I was thinking about Jared in this text message he sent me the night before I got married. It was this long message, but basically the gist of it was just to encourage me, to tell me he was proud of me, and also to, to just say, this journey you're about to go on, it's going to be a hard one, but it's going to be an incredible one. Real close friendships. And see, sometimes when I think, when we think about friends, or at least when we hear that word, we think about people who are close in age, or people that we go and hang out with on the weekends, or someone we might sit and drink a cup of coffee with in the morning. But today, as we talk about friendships... That's not quite the kind of relationships we're going to be talking about. More importantly, when the Bible talks about friendships, the ones worth fighting for, that's not exactly what it had in mind because you can sit and be with someone five days a week. You can call them a friend, but they're not someone who you would call up when you're in trouble or who would be there in a time of grief or who would call you out when you're doing something wrong or who would give you wise and sound advice when you're in need of it. Furthermore, our generation complicates things even more because most of us in here could get on our social media accounts and look at the number of friends or followers that we have. But let's be honest, they're not real friends. I mean, yes, it's very easy to go and accept a friend request on Facebook. See, social media gives the illusion of connectivity and friendship, but the true and real friendships that we long for and desire, the ones worth fighting for, they are way much more than going out and hanging out with a group of people on the weekends, more than just sitting and having a cup of coffee with someone in the morning, more than just these so-called friends on Facebook. And all of those things, by the way, are great. I mean, it's great to go out and enjoy time with people, but the friendships and the relationships worth fighting for are way much more than that. Now, these kinds of friendships worth fighting for, they have the element of having fun together, but they're also relationships where the friend calls you deeper, one where the friend knows what's going on in your life and will come and sit in the mud with you, so to speak, when things are tough, but also a friend that just won't let you wallow in your own self-pity. There are people, they are people that know you well and will correct you when you have done wrong. There are people who know when you need encouragement they are wise and discerning, someone you can rely and depend on, and they also know you well enough to know when it's a time of encouragement and a time of discipline. But also, it's a friendship where you know them just the same, and you can speak into their life just as well. And so when we speak of friendships this morning, I'm giving this biblical definition for friendship, deep relationships where self-sacrifice, honesty, 
encouragement, love, and realness are all characteristics of that relationship. Biblical friendship, deep relationships where self-sacrifice, honesty, encouragement, love, and realness are all characteristics of that relationship. And so we're going to look into the scriptures this morning. We're going to start in the book of Proverbs. Uh, It's known for being a book full of wisdom statements, and it has a lot to say about friendship. So we're just going to look at a selection of those verses and see what kind of wisdom we can glean from them. We'll start out in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, which says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A true friend, Solomon says, is one who sticks closer than a brother. And the brother idea here is someone who's reliable, dependable, and who has deep love. Then it says that if you have unreliable friends, you'll come to ruin. And why is that? Is it because those friends aren't there when you need them? Or is it because those friends say things that aren't true? They say what you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. Either way, if this is consistently the case, that the people you associate with are shallow and unreliable, you have no true support group. And you can easily find yourself never growing, changing, maturing, being challenged or encouraged the way you need to be. It's the frat boy mentality. Someone who has a group of friends, someone who shares common bond, but he stays a boy. Because him and his friends just go out doing things that are neither productive to themselves or to society. And so we need to seek out friends who are reliable. Seek out reliable friends. Proverbs 22 verses 24 and 25 says this, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. Proverbs 13.20 communicates a similar idea when it says this, Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Both of these verses in chapter 22 and here in chapter 13, they're teaching us the same thing, that who we are with determines who we become. And why is that? It's because we're easily influenced. It's the monkey see, monkey do idea, that if we lay down with dogs, we're going to wake up with fleas. And there's something in us that, that wants to mimic and mock the people that we are around. But in his God-given wisdom and speaking under the supernatural guidance of the Spirit, Solomon says, be careful what kinds of friendships you seek out. A true and real friend will not be one who's hot-tempered or easily angered, but one who is wise. So seek out friends worth modeling. And when you surround yourself with this kind of person, when you allow yourself to be influenced by that, that's wisdom. Another proverb about friendship is Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. It says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wombs from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. This one's a little hard to swallow because none of us want to be corrected. None of us want to be called out. But as this proverb tells us, and even as Jesus tells us, true love will have elements of discipline. A true friend will be one who calls you out when you're doing wrong, who won't take sides but will stand in truth and speak in love. A friend who's not willing to say anything when you've done wrong is shallow in an enemy. They may act as if they love you, multiplying kisses as this verse describes, but don't be deceived. Now, let me also say this. A true friend will correct you when when you're out of line, but they're not going to do it out of self-righteousness. They're not going to do it out of trying to be right, not out of pride, not even to embarrass you or to one-up you. No, 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 no. A true friend speaks truth, and they do it in love. And they will honestly confront you in your wrongdoing, 
but do it out of a motivation for truth and for you to be obedient to God. So seek out friends who speak truth in love. Because that same kind of friend who speaks truth in love is also a friend who's there no matter what. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. This means that a true friend is there no matter what. They're not fair-weather friends or ones who are only there when it's time to go and hang out on the weekends. They're ones there who are there in times of good, but also in times of adversity. They love at all times. It reminds me of Job from the Old Testament After Job had lost everything, his family, his wealth, his home, his health, everything, his friends show up on the scene only to see Job sitting in the mud and mourning for his great loss. And most wise Bible commentators commend Job's friends because of what they did at first. Let's look at this scene in Job in chapter 2 and verse 12. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. They just came and sat in the mud with him. They mourned with him. They felt his hurt. They were simply there and present in a time of need. Now later, his friends are going to get themselves into trouble because they're going to start opening their mouths and talking about why all this has happened to Job. But at first, at first, Job's friends show the signs of a true friend. So seek out friends who love at all times. But there's another friendship that stands out among the rest in the scriptures. And that's the friendship between Jonathan and young David of the Old Testament. And this morning, I want us to quickly look at this story to put some flesh on the bones of these kinds of friendships that I'm talking about. You may be familiar with the story of David and Goliath. It's perhaps one of the most well-known stories of the Bible, but let me just freshen your memory and set the scene a little bit. The Israelites, God's people, had been at battle with the Philistines, and the Philistines had this nine-foot-tall man, this giant named Goliath, who would come out each morning and stand in the battlefield and mock and taunt the Israelites. And with no willing or able candidate to kill Goliath, David, who had come to the battle scene because he was bringing food for his brothers who were fighting, said, I'll do it. Well, king, the king, King Saul, like most people around, thought, no way, you're, you're just a boy. But David defeated Goliath with a simple slingshot and a stone. And after this defeat, the Philistines fled. It was an incredible victory for the Israelites. And King Saul of the Israelites, he, he, wanted to, he wanted to commend and honor David. So he invited David into his tent to begin to talk about him and, and figure out how they can recognize him and lift him up and, and make him into a great warrior. And among the people in the tent, as David and Saul were talking, was Saul's son, Jonathan. And it's in that scene that we begin to see this friendship developing. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to begin to look at this story. We'll start in verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. I want you to keep that phrase in the back of your mind, one in spirit. And he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David from him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And then it says, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Now, the reason I ask you to keep that one in spirit thing in the back of your minds, because I want to talk about what that means. 
Most commentators note that it's Jonathan and David. When it says one in spirit, it means that they shared this common bond. But the thing that they bonded around was a love for God and a love for the people of God, Israel. See, friends share a common bond. And there's a lot of things that you can bond around, right? Fishing and, or, or, or sports or, I don't know, women, what are they? Shopping, you bond around shopping, I'm not for sure. But there's all kinds of things you can bond around. But the most significant thing you can bond around and share is a love for God and a love for others. And then, early on in the friendship between Jonathan and David, Jonathan, like a real friend, gives. See, a friend gives. Now, Jonathan here gives material things to David, like his sword, his bow, his his robe, his belt. But I don't want you to miss the point here. See, for the son of the king to give David these things, it was perhaps the highest honor he could bestow on David. But the plot of the story thickens a little bit because there arises this situation that has potential for a thorn to kind of be put in between the friendship between David and Jonathan. Because David begins to show himself as a worthy candidate for leadership in Israel and also as a great warrior, so much so that the people of Israel begin to admire and respect him. And the Bible tells us that he prospered at everything he did, that the Spirit of the Lord was on him. Furthermore, it was God's intent all along that David be the next king of Israel, that he would replace Saul. But King Saul, Jonathan's father, he doesn't like all this attention that David's getting. We're told this in verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Okay, I don't know if that's quite how it sounded, but anyways, that's what they sang. And Saul was very angry of this refrain. It displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands and me with only thousands. What more can this man get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. He despised David. He dreamt of pinning David to the wall. He feared David. He dreaded David. There's even an instance where he was supposed to give his oldest daughter to David to be his, his wife. And at the very last minute, Saul gives and marries her off to someone else. But then Saul's younger daughter, Michael, she shows some interest in David. And Saul, in his wicked and self-centeredness, thought he could use this to his own advantage. He knew that David was from a family that was poor, a farming family. And he knew that David wouldn't be able to pay the typical dowry for the king's daughter. And so he asked David to go to battle and to bring back 200 foreskins of the Philistines. Now that's a pretty gross and disgusting thing to ask for. Let me just say that. But that's not what Saul cared about. Because this was a plot Saul was hoping that in the battle between the Philistines, David would die. And then he wouldn't have to worry about any of this. But David didn't. He defeated and brought back the required payment. And so this time Saul had no choice, so he gave his daughter to David. But his distrust and his hatred for David, it grew deeper. This time he told his servants, Saul told his servants, including Jonathan, his son, to kill David. And Jonathan, in his love and concern for David, told David about this and told him to leave town, to go into hiding that Saul was chasing after to kill him. And then Jonathan went up to bat with Saul in defense of his friend David. 
We're told this in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life into his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all of Israel, and you saw it, and you were glad. Why then would you do this wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Now I want us to catch something here. Besides Saul, Jonathan, the crown prince, the next one and heir to the throne of Israel, had the most to lose with the growing popularity and love by the people that David was receiving. And yet, he still spoke with great power and intense earnestness in defense of his friend David because he valued his friendship and he valued obedience to God above his own interests. And that's what a friend does. A friend sacrifices self for the interest of God and others. A friend sacrifices self for the interest of God and others. Jonathan pleaded with his father for the innocence of David. He told him of the great things that David had done, that literally David risked his life when killing Goliath, that he proved his loyalty to him. See, a friend is a loyal defense before others. A friend won't talk one way about you when you're around and another way when you're gone. And after hearing what Jonathan had to say, Saul agreed to spare David's life, but only for a time. For long, Saul was back at it again, trying to take David's life, once by trying to pin him to the wall with a spear, and a second by positioning a group of officers outside of his home to raid his home in the early morning when David was getting up for the day. But both times, David escaped. And, his, and in his second escape, he came to his friend, Jonathan. Just say, what's going on? Your, your father's trying to kill me. Why is he trying to do this? And this is what we're told Jonathan's response is, First Samuel chapter 20 and verse 2. Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. At first, Jonathan couldn't believe his ears. But then David took an oath with Jonathan and said, Your father knows very well that I've found favor in your eyes. He knows that we're friends. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. At first, Jonathan didn't want to believe the situation that his dad would do this. But when his friend, David, pleaded with him, he knew that he wasn't just making this up. And so they made an oath with each other. They also devised a plan of how they might test whether or not Saul was trying to kill David. The oath was around protecting each other for the rest of their lives. See, Jonathan, like a true friend, protects. Friends protect this plan that they devised included Jonathan telling his father, David, that, they had gone, that David had gone away to his hometown uh, for the annual sacrifice. And if Saul was angry at this, then they would know that he was trying to kill David. And that's exactly what happened. Jonathan goes and tells Saul that David has left to go to his hometown, and Saul got angry. Why? Because David wasn't around. It didn't give him a chance to kill him. And so, through this secret message that Jonathan and David decided on in advance, Jonathan tells this young boy to go and run out into the field, and then he takes out his bow and arrow and shoots, and the arrow goes farther than the young lad, indicating to David that he should flee, he shouldn't come back, that Saul indeed was trying to take his life. And when the young boy came back, Jonathan told him to go back into the city, and David came out of hiding to visit with Jonathan one last time. And I want us to look at this scene 
between Jonathan and David in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 41. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the the ground. They kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. Their tears were one of sadness, perhaps because they would never see each other ever again. Then Jonathan reminded David of this covenant that the two of them made with one another to show loving kindness to each other and also to show that same kind of loving kindness to each other's descendants, a covenant that David kept even after Jonathan's death. Friends, show love toward each other. Even later on in the life of David in the chase between Saul and David, Jonathan shows up on the scene and he seeks out David to find him just simply to encourage him. Look at this over in 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 15. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. He encouraged him. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. And I'll be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. He gives up his right the chance to be king and acknowledges that David's going to be the next king. I'll be second to you. See, Jonathan, like a true friend, is one who encourages. A friend is one who encourages. See, this is biblical friendship. Deep relationships where self-sacrifice, honesty, encouragement, love, and realness are all characteristics of that relationship. They describe the friendship And you and I, we need these kinds of relationships. Moreover, we long for these kinds of relationships, namely because this is how God wired us. And since he created us, he knows. He created and wired us to live and be in community, and the kind of community that is authentic and real, that has deep and meaningful friendships where love and authenticity are lived out. This is by and large why God established the church, because the church is not a building, it's an assembly, a group of people who have in common their faith and their Lord and their God and their mission and their purpose. God knew left to our own devices, we would fail. But these kinds of friendships, they have to be fought for, because although we're wired for them, The enemy has come in and has told us lies and helps us develop excuses to stay away from these deep and meaningful friendships. See, the enemy knows it's true that when we're put in these kinds of friendships, that we can change and grow, that we can be encouraged, and that we can live more like God. Matter of fact, the Word tells us this truth in Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We need deep friendships that are marked with honesty, encouragement, love, and realness so that we can be sharpened and go places that we would never go on our own. And if the enemy had his way, he would keep us dull. Because when we're not being sharpened, when we don't have a community of faith and these real friendships, we become ineffective. And man, a dull, rusty old tool, it's useless. And that's what the enemy wants for us, to keep us ineffective, dull, and useless. And so he tries to keep us away from these real and meaningful relationships. Sometimes he gives us the illusion that we have these friendships. But they're the kind of friendships that Proverbs describes. The unreliable, 
easily angered, hot-tempered friends. Or he tells us lies. Like, we don't have time, right? We, we begin to v- develop excuses of why we should stay away from these kind of friendships. I, I'm too busy. Or they, they, they're only wanting to get into my business so that they can judge me. But God, he wants so much more for you than that. He wants you to grow and become effective. He wants community for you because he knows that when we are in close contact with other people who share our faith and our lordship and who have the same mindset of Christ, we will grow. We'll be challenged and be encouraged to live for God just as we were designed and created to do. It's something worth fighting for. See, when God sent Christ to die, Christ offered himself up as an atonement for our sins. When he was raised from the dead, it showed us that we can have that same life-giving power when we submit our lives to him. But what does God do? Does he just save us and leave us to figure things out on our own? See, God gives us forgiveness. He gives us the Spirit, but he also gives us community. He gives us a place where we can find these deep relationships and friendships. The beautiful thing about giving your life to Christ is with it comes a family a family of people in which you can live and have this deep community and seek out these real friendships. We need to seek out biblical friendships, but we also need to be these kinds of friends to others. We need to, make, and we need to fight to make time for these kinds of relationships, friends who are going to draw us deeper and nearer to God. And if you can't identify in your life right now who that person and friend is, you need to begin to seek that out. You should always have a friend in your life that you can call up up and be open and honest and vulnerable with, someone who knows where you are in life, someone who can challenge you, encourage you, stretch you, and give you sound advice. Right now, I want all of us to do something. I want you to pull out your phone. And I want you to send a text message to someone who's been this kind of friend to you. You can tell them about this morning's message. We're talking about friendships. And what I want you to do is just send a message to them to just say thank you. Perhaps you can give a story, an example of something they've done in in your life, something that you'll never forget. This morning, I'm texting Scott. Perhaps uh, you don't want to pull out your phone. Maybe you can send out a letter later on in the week to that kind of person. But if you're sitting there thinking, I don't really know who I'd send this message to, I want to encourage you to do something. I want to encourage you to join a life group. Life groups are the best place here at Plum Creek for you to find community and to find these real friendships. Now, we're actually entering into a season and a time, the next three months, where we're we're taking a summer break uh, of life groups where they won't be meeting. But we're going to kick them off again in the fall. And what I want to encourage you to do today, if you know this is the kind of thing that I need, I need to find these real friendships, I want to encourage you to go to that link at the bottom of your bulletin. And that link's going to take you to an online form. And if you fill that out, what we're promising to do is in the fall when we start signups, that we'll send you a reminder email of when that's going to happen, but we'll also give you a heads up of some groups that you can jump in and be involved in. Then I encourage you over the course of the next few months to just pray, asking God to open some doors for you to find that kind of friendship and relationship with others. It's the best way. Life groups are the best way to find those kinds of friendships here at Plum Creek, to find that community. 
God has wired and designed us for these kinds of relationships. He saved us and he's put us in a community not to live alone or to figure things out by ourselves. So fight for your friends. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross bearing our shame and guilt. We thank you that you sent him because you loved us. We also thank you that he did not stay dead, but that three days later he came back to life. Because of it, we can have that same life-giving power. But we also give thanks to you, God, because you created and designed this beautiful thing called the church, an assembly or a group of people who share their faith and their lordship and their mission and their purpose. And we thank you for saving us into that, that that we have this group of people we can rely and depend on. And I pray that we can begin to develop friendships that are real and meaningful, the biblical friendships that your word describes. And that we would grow and become more and more conformed to the image you created us in. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen.